Today's guest is chef, TV host, author, and New York Times Magazine food writer, Samin Nostrat. My mom gave me a copy of Samin's amazing cookbook, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, for my birthday, and I haven't put it down since. I've also watched her Netflix docuseries about a hundred times. I was so excited to have Samin on the podcast. She is just so cool, and I got some great cooking tips. I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Hi, Anna. How are you? I lost the marbles. Oh, me too. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I love it that you just open with that. Yeah, I've definitely like lost my mind. Yeah. I love everything about you, Samin. Is that creepy? No, that's so nice. And also, I feel like if you actually knew me, <laughs> you might not feel that way. <laughs> well, you know what? If you actually knew me, you might not want to do this podcast. <laughs> I have a ton of questions for you. But I woke up also thinking, what would Samin make for like a new lover? Like what kind of menu oh. at like, I don't know, maybe it's a late night or something. And what, Like what would you... How would you design that? You know, I think a big part of cooking for people, for me, is is being really present and knowing something about them and what will make them happy. So it's hard for me to answer that question sort of anonymously. But I also love the way that, like, a few simple things I, – I love watching people's faces when, like, they realize that an ingredient – that maybe they had sort of written off as like boring or bland can be transformed in, into something amazing. What if your new partner is maybe Italian? <laughs> oh, Italian. Okay. Maybe maybe <laughs> uh, maybe Southern Italian. Okay. And is is very homesick. Oh, he's homesick. Okay. Well, I would I would also t- not typically make something s- for somebody from where they're from, so, but except when you added the homesick, I get it. Mm-hmm. So probably like. I mean, I've only been in like deep southern Italy a couple times and I was really surprised by actually how many chickpeas they eat there because they plant them in all the like um, vineyards and stuff as 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 fallow to help, you know, add nitrogen back into the soil. So everyone is just like constantly eating chickpeas. So maybe what I would do is turn those chickpeas into something that he wasn't expecting, you know, <gasps> and maybe make some really nice hummus. Like uh, lately I've been making the super simple, like just it's the main difference in this hummus is that it has baking soda in the chickpeas, which makes the skins really tender and the beans really tender. So then when it all gets pureed, it's super, super smooth. And then I just put a ton of tahini in it. Oh, that sounds amazing. But in my experience, Italians are really committed to like, they're all they're like, oh, only what my mom made is okay, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and I'm right. never gonna be someone's mom. Right. So <laughs> I have to just do it my way. <laughs> like <laughs> and so I'm just gonna let you down from the start. <laughs> but I do love the idea, you know, like midnight snack of like chicken stock that I always have in the freezer with a whisked egg like an egg that's whisked with parmesan that's oh stirred into like simmering chicken stock is this dish called stracciatella and it's like people think why would i want to ever eat that you know it's like roman egg drop soup 
but then you eat it and it's just so unbelievably delicious. And it's this simple, right? It's chicken stock and eggs. It's nothing fancy. And yet it's a revelation, you know, or even just like roasted cauliflower for people who think they hate cauliflower because all they've ever had is like steam table cauliflower from a cafeteria. And, you know, you roast it and it gets all the crispy edges and really caramelized and brown and it just changes into something totally different. And that's what I love to do is sort of delight people with really simple stuff. Yeah. When I was 19, I sold my Honda Accord. And I study, well, I use the term study very liberally, but I went to Siena for a semester. And there was this one restaurant, tiny little place. It had like two tables, and they only served ribolletta. And uh-huh. it was amazing. And to do one thing so well and to only serve that felt like there there was a comfort in well just how amazing the the soup was and for our listeners who, who don't know it's like it's kind of a complicated soup i i tried to make it once there are a lot of ingredients <laughs> yes yes a ton of ingredients but it but it's this gorgeous tuscan stew and uh, and i loved the decision making factor just being eliminated which is also why i you know i love to eat it friends' homes because you're getting exactly sort of what, what they would like to serve you. Mm-hmm. I love And that. yeah, there's something kind of wonderful in that. Although the older lady who ran the restaurant started to really scold me for dumping too much olive oil on the soup. What? I, An Italian yeah. who's like against olive oil? <laughs> I was so greedy, though. You know, oh, I would, okay, I okay. would like put a like a heavy sheen on it, like frosting. <laughs> <laughs> I do that. And that too. was it's so it's it's so good. So, Samin, for our listeners who don't know, I want to talk to you a little bit about your your background, your childhood. Yeah, my parents came to San Diego from from Iran, from Tehran, in the mid seventies, and then I was born in nineteen seventy nine, and. um I definitely grew up with this sense of being from somewhere else that I had never seen (laughs) or been to. And um, that led to a lot of confusion and still leads me to a lot of confusion in my life (laughs) of where am, where do I belong? Who am I? Yeah. Do you have a lot of memories in the 80s of of sort of your parents adjusting to, I mean, had they lived in America, had they been to America before? Yeah, both of my parents went to school in the States. And so they were in the, you know, before the revolution in Iran, there was much more sort of freedom to go back and forth. So my mom went to school in Wisconsin and, you know, they were both very, very fluent in like Western life. Also, Iran before the revolution was very Westernized. And the pictures of my mom's childhood and my mom's youth are, you know, look more like Europe than they do the kind of Middle East or Iran that we sort of picture these days. And, uh, you know, she like wore bikinis to the beach. Right. And, you know, my family left for various reasons. I mean, I think ultimately it all had to do with politics. But my dad's family is a religion called Baha'i and they were all like basically suffered the threat of persecution. So they all left. And then my mom's side of the family stayed. And I think, you know, I spend a lot of time sort of trying to connect to what their experience must have been like, especially now I'm I'm even older than they were when they came, but just how difficult it must have been to have certain things projected onto you about who people think you are, you know, that have nothing to do with who you actually are. 
Yeah. And my mom, I think, always believed in her heart that we would go back, that she would raise her kids in Iran. Right. And so it was really important to her to immerse us in our culture. How would she do that? She cooked for us and she signed us up to go to Persian school to learn to read and write. On Saturdays, we went, we were like very resentfully went to Persian school. <laughs> the only good thing about it was that my mom, who only ever let us have junk, like, um, you know, natural food and homemade food on Saturdays, kind of as our bribe, we were allowed to have egos. But <laughs> so that was like the ma- most amazing thing. And um, a box of egos has eight egos, but there I have two brothers. So there was not like an even way to divide the egos. So we became really good at two and two-thirds egos apiece. <laughs> oh so wait like a minute. We knew how to divide an ego into thirds. Samin, <laughs> so in your beautiful book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, you write – here, I have to – because now that, that you've already talked about your two brothers, how did you get the crunchiest part of the tadig? Is that how you pronounce it? Of the tadig. Tadig. It's become a favorite due to your cookbook in our house. Oh, that makes me so happy. Your cookbook is, a, is fucking amazing. But so wait, please describe what, oh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. Ta, how do you pronounce it, Samin? Yeah, Tadig. Tadig. You got it. You got it. You're doing a good job. Okay. So Tadig just means the bottom of the pot. And Persian rice is sort of the prize of, of, of every dinner is the Tadig, is the crispy rice at the bottom of the pot. And everyone in a family like fights over it. And so it's kind of like, you know, a pizza and then you like fight over it for your best, your favorite kind of slice. Like mine's always the most burnt. And I really just like the taste of like very dark, nearly burnt stuff. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. It's like that the beautiful, crunchy, you know, so almost like fried, like it, it's a, it's absorbed the butter. Yeah, it is. It's fried. It's so good. It's, so it's good. funny. I have a friend who's Grandma's from Puerto Rico, and then I have a lot of Korean friends, and I feel like there's an entire sort of, like, unity in the world of the cultures of crispy rice, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> people from all over, I mean, they're in Spain at the bottom of the paella. It's called Socorat. There's so much good crispy rice in the world, and and I love that people now are making this tadig from the book. I love that you're making it. My mom gave me your book maybe a year ago, and and then I saw your show. I am just such a huge fan. But my Persian friend told me that the tadig was reserved for the boys, and now I'm curious. Oh about yeah, how, I would not be surprised. You... <laughs> in my family, <laughs> in my family, I don't think my mom would have stood for that. You know, like right, that sort right, of misogyny right. in our. <laughs> but there is a lot of misogyny for sure in, in our culture. Yeah. I love what you said, uh, what you say in your introduction. You write, this book will change the way you think about cooking and eating and help you find your bearings in any kitchen with any ingredients while cooking any meal. You'll start using recipes, including the ones in this book, like professional cooks do for the inspiration, context, and general guidance they offer, rather than by following them to the letter. I promise this can happen. You can become not only a good cook, but a great one. I know because it happened to me. I love that. Instilling like familiarity, you approach cooking so it doesn't intimidate people like me who, you know, are – I'm at that point because I do love to cook, but I've become more arrogant than I should be. So I'm taking shortcuts and I'm doing epic failures. 
Oh yeah, me too. I mean, we all do that. <laughs> I think I think learning any skill is that kind of thing where you first are completely intimidated and then you learn something, some tiny thing, and then you're like, "Oh, I got this." Yeah. And then you start <laughs> you, you start you're like, "Oh, I don't need to follow those rules." <laughs> right. Right. And so it's happening to me right now because I've never been a bread baker. I've just had like zero. Oh. It has seemed really intimidating to me over just over the course of my career, because I've been very close to a lot of incredibly talented bread bakers and watching them do it and how much work and time goes into it. It just seems like there's an entire world of information that I um, didn't really feel like I could. I just was like, I can't take on another thing. And now because I'm home, I was like, OK, maybe I'll try my hand at this. I'll, and so I got some sourdough starter and some flour. And my very first round ended up being successful because I got really great instructions. And then I was like, I got this. <laughs> and then right. I had nine failures. <laughs> oh. And then I had to go back to the basics. You know, I think that sort of like, re you know, rebounding is a big part of learning any skill. Right. But if you're not going to sort of try to push outside of the boundaries, you're you're going to get bored. So I don't think I don't think of it as failure necessarily. Just think of it part of the learning curve. Don't feel bad. I mean, I, I made bread <laughs> a couple weeks ago and I had just like like two packets of yeast left, you know, and I made mm -hmm. bread that could have been used as a weapon. I mean, it was <laughs> me too. I did that. Too. It was a oh God. It was a brick. Oh my and... god! The one, the one, one, the like worst failure I had was this bread that I made that I had I had sort of ruined during the rising process, but I didn't really know that I had ruined it. And so I don't know the way you've been making yours, but I've been doing it the kind where you have to bake it in a Dutch oven in the oven. Oh right. And so right. I put I put it in the Dutch oven. <laughs> this is so good. I put it in the Dutch oven, and it was kind of covered in flour because you have to like coated in like when you're shaping it you put flour on the outside to keep it from sticking to the counter so it's kind of covered in flour so I put it in the Dutch oven you put the lid on and you bake it for 20 minutes and then you take the lid off so I did the 20 minutes and I was like this something doesn't feel right or smell right it kind of smells like it's burning but I just thought it was maybe the like dusted flour that was burning and I just let it keep going and then my house started filling with smoke and I was like mm, I bet it's filling with smoke because it's just that flour's burning <gasps> off <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. I went outside and like at, when the timer went off, I came back inside and it was like a piece of carbon. <laughs> it had burned so badly. It had cooked onto the pot. So the pot now is like, you know, in like 900 degrees. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it was just like this like steaming, burning. It was so <laughs> bad. It was so disgusting. And, and my house smelled like burned bread for like three days. <laughs> I bet that was like fun scrubbing that yeah, Hot. totally. Oh. <laughs> it was awful. But I mean, it happens to everyone, you know, happens to everyone. Samin, what would you make for like a dessert for a best friend or somebody that you really love? I think fruit is really, really precious. And really good fruit is really special. And I feel so lucky because where I live, we have a lot of fruit trees and we have this beautiful apricot tree. Apricots are oh. one of my favorite fruits. And they're so sort of valuable to me because they're only ripe for a very short time. You can't really ship them. They're just so delicate. So it's the kind of thing like you just eat it. You go to the farmer's market, you get your apricots, you pick them off the tree, you eat your apricots. So I would probably make like an apricot cake. You know, like an upside down cake that has a ton of fruit on, on the bottom or or maybe an apricot tart and um, 
just make it as much about the fruit as possible. Again, like I grew up eating pretty good. You know, my mom shopped in like the like hippie co-ops and stuff. She was buying like the best stuff she could get her hands on. But I definitely did not love fruit as a kid. I think it just unless like my aunt peeled apples or or oranges for me, unless somebody else did the hard work. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so so it wasn't like I was ever going to choose fruit. I just wanted what my mom wouldn't let me have, which was like candy. Well, when you're a kid, it's like there's chocolate out there. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally. And so I think there's this like wonderful opportunity to sort of give people a revelatory experience with fruit. And that's something God. I really relish as a cook. Oh, if we can ever meet. Will you teach me how to make an <laughs> apricot cake? Yeah. That sounds incredible. Of course. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you some life questions. Of course. You know, we'll, we'll start out easy. I'll, that's all I'll say. Okay. <laughs> what What is your favorite ice cream flavor? Okay, I have two answers to this because I have like my fancy bouge answer yeah. and I have my regular answer. Okay. I love it. Okay. So my regular answer is my lifelong favorite ice cream has been Haagen-Dazs coffee. I love that. I just love how rich it is. I love the coffee taste. Yeah. And also, I'm a person who puts so much milk in my coffee that when other people are like, oh, can I get you some, you know, coffee? And I say, okay, but it has to be really milky, like embarrassingly milky. And nobody ever puts enough until I finally realize I just have to tell them it has to look like Haagen-Dazs coffee ice cream. Like that's how milky I want my coffee to be. Uh Uh-huh. I'm so – I'm a lover of milk too. I, I I love your story about the chocolate souffle. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, okay. What's your what's your other flavor? So then my fancy answer is um, there's a flavor called noyo, which is the the taste of the little. It's like a seed. It's like a little nut. It's a kernel that's inside of an apricot pit. If you crack an apricot pit inside, it looks like an almond. Right. Right. Okay. And because almonds are related to apricots and peaches and cherries, they're all related, like botanically. And so if you crack open an apricot pit, there's this thing, and it actually is like a little bit poisonous. If you eat too many of them, you can get sick. But it smells like the most heavenly sort of almond extract smell. So if you steep those little nuts in cream, or what I do is I, after I like harvest all my apricots and make jam for the year... I crack open all the pits and I put them in a jar and then pour vodka over. So I get this extract that is the most heavenly, oh. fragrant, like almondy smell. Oh, and it's God. called noyo. It's so good. Oh, what's funny is like I described it as bouge, but it's actually essentially garbage. <laughs> it's just oh. garbage taste. <laughs> it's like made out of garbage. So it's just so so good. Is it difficult to crack those, or is it like cracking an almond? cracking the pit of an apricot. No, it's not hard. What I do is I just take all the pits and I freeze them. And then it's kind of fun. Like I lay them all out on a, on like a towel or on a concrete or on the sidewalk. And then I just go out there with a hammer and I crack them all open. And then you take the little nut out. (laughs) I want to know when you're canning apricot jam season is. Oh, I'll send you some jam. It's like the best thing I make. Samin, that's so what I wanted you to say. This is very exciting to me. What would you eat for your last meal? And you can decide if you know you it's your last meal or if you don't know. I don't I don't know if I need to know. Okay. Like no matter what, I would eat a huge, amazing taco spread. Oh. Like I, you know, having grown up in San Diego, I feel like I'm like part Mexican. <laughs> And Mexican food is my favorite. 
and it's so flavorful and there's just so many different tastes and all of the different salsas. And so one of my favorite things is to just have a meal where I'm like building tacos as I go and not, you know, there's not any repetition. So like I'll, I might put a different, you know, meat in, in one taco. I might put different salsas on top. I might put beans in one and not put beans in another. And so that kind of thing where every bite is a surprise is my favorite. And I just love Mexican food. It's so fresh, so flavorful, has beautiful like acidity and all sorts of deliciousness. So, Oh, you're making me so hungry. <gasps> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What does somebody like me who grew up in Edmonds, Washington, we had like, you know, a couple of sort of strip mall Mexican restaurants. What are we missing when we when we make Mexican food at home? Hmm. I want those beautiful smoky flavors with like cilantro, but I know that I'm missing a lot of nuance. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even consider myself to be a great Mexican cook. I think I'm a great Mexican eater. <laughs> but I do think one big thing that we all miss and what which was a big moment for me was to taste real corn tortillas made out of like freshly ground masa, which is the oh. corn Mexican cornmeal. And they're not really that hard to make. And there are so many people, you know, selling that kind of masa now online that you can buy like freshly ground corn because then you eat a tortilla and you realize why it's called a corn tortilla. Whereas the whole rest of our lives, we've been eating these things that taste sort of like cardboard. Right. That's a big change. I think beans, I think, you know, I love a taqueria sort of refried bean or a black bean. I love that from just like your regular corner place. But when I've been in Mexico to see all of the different kinds of beans available at the market and the fact that they all have different characteristics and different flavors and textures is, I think, really amazing. There's this awesome bean uh, purveyor called Rancho Gordo. And he works with a lot of Mexican farmers to grow and import and sell their different kinds of beans. And that's a really cool way to get familiar with different beans. Can we look up Rancho Gordo on the on the Internet? Oh, yeah. You can look it up on the Internet. Yeah, he's he's very active. His name is Steve Sando. He's really awesome. You know, it might be a surprise to like pay six bucks for a pound of beans. But a pound of beans becomes like three or four meals. And these are unlike any other bean that you've ever had. They're just so good. Plus, they're like usually with less than a year old, which means that they cook up much more sort of plump and creamy. Oh, they're really awesome. So and I also think my experience of salsa was was not. I think you probably if you're only eating strip mall Mexican food, you're not really getting the full experience of what a salsa can be, which can be fresh, can be cooked, can be charred. You know, it can be made out of like dried peppers, and there's just so many different kinds of salsa from all over Mexico and to get to experience as many of those is really, really heavenly. So your story, I'm going to get back to life questions because the next one sort of leads <laughs> into this. But you're, no, 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 I love this. Are you kidding? So I read in your book 
and I think you've talked about it on some talk shows as well. You at 19 went with your boyfriend at the time to Chez Panisse in San Francisco, or it's in Berkeley. Yeah. I've only driven past the front of it. I've never dined there. <laughs> the um, front of it is very beautiful. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. It's on, it's like, it looks like a, this incredible tree house. Like, yeah. But you dined there and then you wrote a letter. Will you tell our listeners about, about your story? Yeah. It's remarkable. So, you know, I grew up eating home cooked food and we in our family didn't have like a huge culture of eating out in restaurants, certainly not fancy ones. You know, we had Chinese food and Mexican food and pizza and stuff. So when I came to college in Berkeley, very early on, people were like, oh, yeah, you have to go to Chez Panisse. It's this, the most famous restaurant in Berkeley or in California or in America. At the time, it was known as the best restaurant in the country. And my sophomore year, I fell in love. And my boyfriend, he had always wanted to go there. And we really bonded over eating the delicious things that he had grown up eating in the Bay Area. And so we saved our money for seven months. We saved 220 bucks and we went there. And it was really this delightful experience. It was absolutely delicious. But, you know, like I was not a stranger to deliciousness. What was really new for me was this experience of being so cared for in a restaurant and just feel having like everything taken care of and brought to you and people were so nice to us, which felt very weird. And That's uh, <laughs> amazing. You know, I, ne- I never thought of that element really. I, I don't know why. I, I mean, I can think about restaurant experiences where it has felt homey, but I don't think I've ever really examined that. Yeah. And how wonderful that is. I think that's like part of the art of service of like, you know, and that's what you get in the very best restaurants is like everything sort of being taken care of for you, sometimes even before you know that you need or want anything. So our dessert was chocolate souffle. And I just to paint the picture, I was 19. I was wearing a black tank top and a denim skirt, feeling very fancy. And it's not like a super, super, super fancy dining room, but I'm sure we stuck out. And so when the server brought the souffle, she said, have you ever had souffle before? And I said, no. And she said, would you like me to show you how to eat it? And I said, yes. And so she said, you poke a hole in it with your spoon and you pour this sauce in. And it was a raspberry sauce. And so she said, that way every bite gets sauce. So I took a bite and she said, how is it? And I said, oh, it's really good, but it would be even better with a glass of cold milk. (laughs) Yeah. And she was like, what? (laughs) She's like, you want milk? So I said, yeah. So she brought me cold milk. And then she also brought us each like a glass of dessert wine because later I would realize that milk is considered not part of fine dining. And also, obviously, it's like really rude to tell someone how to make something better at a restaurant. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I think the fact that like I wasn't, you know, I was just totally naive. I think that they they thought it was sweet. And so I was so inspired and we had friends who worked there as bussers and I always had jobs throughout college. So I wrote this um, letter to Alice Waters, to the owner and chef of Chez Panisse, and I brought it asking for a job bussing tables. And so they said, oh, you have to bring that to the floor manager. So they brought me to her office and she opened the door and it was the souffle lady. And we recognized each other and she gave me the job. And so I started the next day. I mean, she gave me the job because she was desperate. It had nothing to do with me, I think. I doubt that. But, Are you um... kidding? No. Like somebody who has the initiative to write a letter and and deliver it personally, that's that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, it was it was absolutely a turning point in my life for sure. And so in in that restaurant, you know, like I was a student, I was an English major, I wanted to be a writer, and it 
was this kind of incredible world that I fell into and learned so much about. And it really is the place that taught me how to be, in a lot of ways, an artist, how to be a curious sort of citizen of the world. And yeah, I I, I am so indebted to Chez Panisse and to everything I learned there and all the people I met there for sort of creating, you know, the foundation of who I eventually have become. That's so amazing. I love that. Did you always want to write? Uh, um, yeah. When I was little, my aunt, uh, like when she was in college, she was a, like worked in the library at her college. And so I thought of her as a librarian, even though I think she just like shelved books or whatever. And so I was like, I want to be a librarian like my aunt because I love her so much and I love books. And by the time I had gone to college, I really wanted to be a writer, a poet of some kind, but I didn't know how to do any of that. And I never let go of that, even as sort of it occurred to me that I could learn how to cook and that would be a skill that I would have. Even when I was so excited about cooking and I wanted to learn about it, it was never really my dream to be a chef and have a restaurant. I wanted always to write and figure out a way to sort of intertwine food and writing. And I guess I've figured that out. So that's good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh on your show and the appearances, you, you're incredibly warm. You have an amazing, uh, just a, a spirit about you that makes cooking and exploring with you wow, delighted. Thanks. When you're delighted, your audience is delighted, which can be perceived as sort of an extrovert. But the way you're describing sort of your childhood and what you wanted to do, very much sort of solitary activities, which sort of lends itself to being a bit of an introvert. I'm definitely both. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely both. I think um, I appear as an extrovert for sure. But if I don't have enough time on my own, I really suffer and the people around me suffer. (laughs) But the way I think about it, too, is I would probably go crazy if I didn't have cooking and writing. Or I would probably go crazy if I didn't have writing and something else. Because cooking is so social. And it's very physical and you're in your body, you're moving, you're lifting big cases of stuff, you're smelling and tasting, you're using your hands and you get out of your head, you know? And also like in the best sort of form of cooking when it's your job and you're in a kitchen with a bunch of other people and you're learning from them and sort of bouncing ideas off of each other, that's incredibly sort of like extroverted. Not Mm -hmm. necessarily that all cooks are extroverted, but it's a very sort of that kind of energy. Mm -hmm. And... Writing, on the other hand, is completely solitary. I spend all of my time in my own head, which can sometimes be a very dangerous place to be. And I feel like I'm not complete without both. I need both. I never felt complete as a cook without having something else to do. And I'm so grateful as a writer to have a way out of my head. Yes. And I I think a lot of actors too, or performers have that balance of being extreme introverts and extreme extroverts and sort of like navigating those waters a bit. Yeah, I can imagine that. So who has influenced your career the most? Oh, that's interesting. Um, Wow. There was a chef at Chez Panisse named Chris Lee who really took me under his wing in a time when like I wasn't, you know, I was not a natural cook. (laughs) I was just very avid and very excited, but I was not good or, you know, and it's a lot of work to invest in someone and make them a cook. And Chris believed in me and he guided me and taught me and gave me opportunity. And um, for really the first 10 years of my career, he 
he gave me so much. And so I definitely don't think I could be or would be a cook without Chris. And I think that that led me sort of also out of the kitchen and, you know, into onto the page. So probably Chris Lee. That's amazing. Do most uh, chefs have a regional specialty? Um, yeah, probably I would say I yes and no. Like in, in Chez Panisse, we as cooks all prided ourselves on being able to make anything <laughs> and and sort of um, – and learn about anything. The restaurant definitely was based sort of in, in Mediterranean cuisine, be it like from, you know, the south of France through Italy into Spain. And Chris's love for sure was Italian food. And I went to Italy. I lived in Italy for two years. And so when I came back, Chris had left Chez Panisse to open an Italian restaurant. So I went to work for him because that felt right. Eco, ecolo, ecolo. Ecolo, yeah. Exactly. I think Italy was what united in the, in the form that we know it in 1890s? 1800s, right? yeah. Yeah. So I think there's still that that regional element and I don't know. I think that there's something very magical in sort of preserving the pride and identity um of those mm-hmm. regional cuisines and and I, I think you mentioned earlier like the tradition. Do you find that Italian cooks are much uh, are more rigid in terms of tradition sticking. (laughs) Yes, very. I mean, they're so, it's very funny. Like the example I use is, so I lived in Florence for about a year and a half. And, you know, my, my interest and homework that I had done in, on Italian cooking um, before that was from cuisines all over the country. And so one dish that I think many people in America are probably familiar with is um, like deep fried squash blossoms that are stuffed with cheese. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, it's not like the most popular thing, but it's a lot of people have probably heard of that. Yeah. So <laughs> one day I made that at a like at a dinner for my friends in Florence and I, you know, I filled the squash blossoms with ricotta and mozzarella and I battered them and I deep fried them and I brought them to the table and they were eating them and they were like, what is this delicacy you have invented? And I'm like, I did not invent this. It's from a hundred miles away. Like it's from Rome. It's not, it's, I did not invent this. Like, how do you not know this thing in your own country? And it's because for people from Florence, there's like nothing outside of Florence that's worth knowing. Same thing, actually, ribolita, the soup we were talking about, the like bean and bread soup. I lived in Piemonte in the north for a while, and one day I said something about ribolita, and nobody knew what I was talking about. So it's kind of shocking. It's kind of like, are you kidding me? But it's also very beautiful because that rigidity and the sort of adherence to tradition is what preserves those traditions. And so if there's a middle place where you can sort of pay attention to and honor your own history while also being open to food from around the world. I think that's a beautiful middle place and that's where I try to exist. And I catch myself being really dogmatic about certain things all the time. But um, then you go out and learn about the world and you realize like, oh, there's a hundred ways to do this. There's a thousand ways. Well, and I, and I think that's the beauty of your book too and your show is that you're you're liberating a home cook, giving basic tools. And then once you've mastered some of those ideas, then you can start exploring, which I love. And because your book is so approachable. <laughs> Thank you. But those fucking biscuits. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The biscuits are so good. <laughs> 
Those are from a kid who like just is a biscuit master. He shared his recipe with me. He's amazing. Because the approach is completely different. It's totally the opposite. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Do you have other examples of like how we are doing everything wrong? Oh, God. No. I mean, there's just – there are so many funny things, especially in baking – where I think we're all taught that we have to do something a certain way. There's some cake my friend makes where you like microwave the water and flour together. <laughs> and it's just, it seems like that sounds disgusting. And why would you ever do that? And then it come out comes this cake that's just like oh so light God. and fluffy. So I do think there is, you know, I, I came from a really traditional cooking background. To me, when I started cooking at Chez Panisse, they all said like, go read these books. This is how we cook. This is the way things are done. And so I really absorbed that and became that person. I know you mentioned Marcella. What's her last name? Oh, Marcella Hazan. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, some of the other books. Oh, yeah. There's actually – we can find the link and send it to you. But I made a list of all those books when I started my column at the time. Oh, great. And like Richard only he's, – he's a great sort of uh, American writer who wrote a lot about Provençal cooking. Elizabeth David – Jane Grigson. There's a whole class of women who were sort of British, European, and a couple American women writing in like the 1950s, 60s. My mom has a massive cookbook collection. She sort of taught me my my love of cooking. And like, I'm not great at all. In fact, I'm, I give myself a C and not for effort. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, Samin, what's the best and or worst advice you've ever been given? Oh, man. Wow. Probably the best advice is that all of the things that I think of as horrible about myself are actually what make me me and what make other people (laughs) really sort of love me. And that's in a lot of ways the um, opposite messaging than I've received in my life. So that's been kind of this wonderful guiding light. And it's cool. I, I wrote this Every time I turn in my column at the New York Times Magazine. So when I was a baby cook, when I... Oh, Fava, what are you doing? When I was a young cook, Did you name your puppy um, Fava? Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Fava. She's a monster. (laughs) Oh, so when I was a baby cook, I read this column in the New York Times Magazine every week religiously. It was like the beautiful food column, the best food writing. And I, I thought maybe one day, like, that's my dream. And now I write that column, which is amazing. And when I first got the job, I I was really stressed out because I was like, I need to be, you know, literary and smart and thoughtful and the best writer ever. So my writing in the beginning was a very sort of stilted, I think, because I was trying to be some, you know, literary something and not myself. And then every time I would just like get so frustrated and write basically a column that <laughs> As if it were an Instagram caption. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like not try super hard and just be really silly and stupid. I would turn it in and my editor would be like, this is the best one yet. <laughs> and I asked her, I said, I don't understand. Like these are the ones where I'm just being corny and not, you know, trying very hard and not being thoughtful. And you guys are this like very serious magazine. How I don't understand. Like, how does this work? And why does everyone love these ones? And she says, it's because you are being you. And when you say these corny jokes, it sounds like something you'd actually say. And I'm like, no, no, it is something I would actually say. Yeah. And she said, well, we have you here because you're you. And, you know, people 
become there's there's so much heaviness in this magazine and people want to read you because you're joyful and you know light and delightful and so when you try to be something that you're not that doesn't work it just doesn't feel right and so when you're just yourself that's when it really shines and I think that's something as a writer, but also as a human that I'm really trying to sort of remind myself on a daily basis about. You know, I was a huge fan of the late, great Jonathan Gold, who did something mm. similar in terms of like his restaurant reviews. He, you know, to our listeners who might not know, he he was a famous restaurant critic here in Los Angeles and was sort of the first person that at least on my radar in, in terms of a major news publication who would go to incredibly obscure, hole-in-the-wall mm -hmm. places that only served like goat stew from a waka or whatever. And totally. And how, how bringing accessibility to food and breaking down sort of the intimidation factor and how you can explore other cultures and and find common ground in in the most basic and beautiful of ways. Yeah, he really celebrated sort of people. <laughs> and you do the same thing though, Samin. But oh. but you do and, and I think that's why you're you're beloved. Thank you. Did anyone ever give you terrible terrible cooking advice? And in your head you were like that's completely wrong. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because I think at the point when people were giving me advice, I just was a sponge. I mean, I definitely have received many um, conflicting pieces of advice, which as like a obsessive organizational young person who just wanted to understand, I was like, I just want the one way to get to the be the best. And I think because there is not one way. Oh God, Fava, Fava! <laughs> <laughs> it's our neighbor dog. Our neighbor dog is like, hey, 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 come here. It's okay. Let me go grab her real fast. Oh God, what are you doing? Hold up. What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fava's just feeling, she's feeling it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tried making fava beans like, I don't know, a few years ago. And so, I, you know, I, I bought expensive fava beans. I shelled them. They were gorgeous. I still don't know if I utilize them very well. Oh, man, it's a lot of work. They're a lot of work, which also this this dog is a lot of work, too. And um, <laughs> so now I've been I've been gardening a lot. And fava beans are something like sort of every beginning gardener is told to plant. They're really good for the soil and farmers plant them and then they sell them. But they are a lot of work. You have to cook them twice. You have to peel them twice. It's a lot of work. That's what I remember. And there's not some, 
There's not some like big bang flavor delivery. Right. I think for a lot of cooks, including me, I look forward to them because they're kind of one of the first things in the spring. So it's this kind of moment where like I can stop eating sweet potatoes and butternut squash and now there's a new thing. (laughs) Right. It's not that I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a BLT and it's my first summer tomato. It's not that. It's just a sort of a shift in the season that that they symbolize. And that's really sort of what they mean to me. But also they're an important ingredient in a lot of Persian cooking. And so for me, it's this kind of beautiful thing to see Western people and, you know, regular Americans at the farmer's market celebrating them because they're something that when I was a kid, nobody knew what they were. But we ate them at dinner all the time. So I love that. I love that they kind of bridge over many different cultures. Yeah. Okay. What is your favorite rainy day movie? Ooh. uh, What have I watched like a gajillion times? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't have one thing that I return to. I kind of go through phases. But recently I watched Big again with Tom Hanks. Yeah. There is something really wonderful about returning to 80s movies that meant something to me in a certain way. And now I think as an adult, I'm older, I'm sure, than Tom Hanks was in it. He's just so naive and young and beautiful. And he's a joy. Yeah. There's just this innocence too. And like, it's before cell phones. I love watching movies that take place before cell phones. And like, they have to struggle to get to a phone booth, you know? (laughs) Right. It's just, it's, there's something different. Do you have a favorite book or author? Oh, probably my favorite book, which for like many different reasons is Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And she is from Nigeria. She is one of the most thoughtful, smart, amazing writers I've ever read. She's an incredible feminist. And I I loved novels as a kid. I read so much fiction. And then probably for the last like 15 years, I've really read predominantly nonfiction. And it it was a delicious sort of treat to read this book that took me back into like my imagination And it's one of those sort of like you're following someone's life over many, many years books. And I love that. And I'm going to answer a second person, which is I really love Jhumpa Lahiri. She's Bengali. And when I read her first book, The Interpreter of Maladies, and that was after I graduated college. And that was the very first time I read a book where I saw things of my life reflected on the page, you know, and that wasn't even like an Iranian author. She she just was the child of immigrants and she was a brown kid who had a lot of expectations on her and that was reflected in the, in these stories. So it never occurred to me that I could ever read books where something related to me, you know. <laughs> I always thought books were like some far away reality. And because I was reading books with all white characters, you know, or taking place in like Europe at some point in time. And, you know, and Jane Eyre and all that beautiful stuff, which is such beautiful writing. But it just never occurred to me. It felt like a luxury to get to have some part of my experience sort of reflected in this book. And so even though my parents are not from Africa and I'm not Nigerian, like reading Americana was really, really incredible. And I was reading it when I was visiting my childhood home. My parents were getting divorced and I was reading it sort of while I was home supporting my mom through that. And I was back in my childhood bedroom in this room where I had read so many books. So there was sort of this like meta 
feeling right. of like that's what I did as a kid was I read books in my room with the door closed uh-huh. and now I was back in my room reading books with the door closed so yeah so okay I'm gonna check out these books Americana and the Interpreter of Maladies what makes you laugh I mean absurdity I laugh so much at absurdity <laughs> and there's so much absurdity <laughs> I laugh when I don't know what else to do is it like out of frustration or is it just like sometimes out of frustration sometimes out of like just like silly, there's a lot of silliness or, you know, people being, you know, like humans are imperfect and that imperfection is often very funny to me because I also am very imperfect. You know, like I'm often tripping and falling and just messing up. And I think acknowledging that is it's uh, there are a lot of things where I think I prefer to laugh than to be embarrassed. You know, <laughs> I love in your show how generous you are of being the student with these beautiful Mm -hmm. cooks that you work with. And the wonderful thing is I think most of your audience totally understands that you're a fucking badass. But you're 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 very generous in in accepting of exploration and giving the gift of being taught, Mm. which is a beautiful way to approach it, especially as a viewer, because you're not quite as intimidated to explore some some of the ideas. Thank you. Thanks for noticing. I mean, that was definitely a very conscious choice. I mean, part of it is it's who I am. And I, I have historically watched a lot of cooking TV, a lot of cooking travel TV. And one thing that really sort of um, drives me nuts is when people show up places and they're, you know, very busy showing what they would do. Yeah. <laughs> And a lot of it, I think, is how I was raised and socialized as brown woman, as a woman, is to like be very careful not to step on people's toes and all that kind of stuff, which is not necessarily like the healthiest sort of thing to have. But I do think it's created sort of sensitivity as a really important priority for me. As a person also, many good things about my culture have been taken without credit, including many things about our food. And so it's really personal to me and it's really important to me to give people space to tell their own story, to show their own way, to be their own selves. Like the very last thing I would feel comfortable doing is going into someone's house and being like, well, let me show you how I do this. And it's interesting too, actually, sometimes for like the purpose of the narrative of the show or the story or the scene, it was necessary for me to do stuff like that or to say stuff like that. And I'd be like, no, no, I can't do that. I won't do that. (laughs) Like I cannot do that. I cannot like travel to the you know, far countryside in like rural Mexico to this woman's house who we've begged, you know, to teach me how to make her turkey and then tell her how I would do it. I can't do that. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that philosophy. Yeah. Okay. What is a trait you dislike in others? And what is a trait you dislike in yourself? I think a trait that really drives me nuts. It's funny because it's almost the same for other people and for me is like disingenuousness. Mm-hmm. If I sense that you're not being, you know, if there's like an ul- ulterior motive mm-hmm. for what it is that you're trying to say to me or just like fakeness, that really drives me nuts. Like I want people to be real with me and I and I try to be real with people. But then, you know, kind of like I was referring to earlier, like I have been socialized in a lot of ways to be polite to people. And I I don't want to hurt people's feelings. So I do that a lot. Like the thing, the very thing that drives me nuts about other people, I do. So 100%. It's it's both. And it feels like it's the dialogue in the entertainment industry. 
you know, I think if I lived in LA, I would fully, I would succumb to it. Like I don't have a strong enough sense of self, I think, to like not believe all of that stuff, which is why before my book came out, I, you know, and I'd worked so hard on this book for so long and I gave everything I had and people were waiting for it and there was all this stuff being said. And I went to therapy and I said, I, I was, I'm a, I told my therapist, I was like, I'm terrified of what's going to happen. I, because I know that I ride sort of my self-worth rides on other people's value <laughs> of me and my work. And I can't do that. Like I, I, ha, I, I know that's not a healthy thing and it's very much what I'm not able to do. Because if I do that for this book, I'm going to like float every time someone says something good and like sink every time something some, – and that's going to be a roller coaster that doesn't end. And I just was like, how do I get out of this this cycle? And he said, you have to define success for yourself and and go by that. So I, I, I kind of came up with a, a definition for myself that was about did I give everything I have and do everything I, I, I could do to make something good and was I proud of it? And I could say yeah. And so I did – that and I was able to say yes. And then I really committed to not reading the comments and not reading press. And I don't. I don't listen to anything. I don't read anything. I don't look at anything. Which is not to say I'm not open to criticism. I'm happy for for criticism to make its way to me because I want to know how to be better and if I'm doing anything insensitive, but I just can't I can't like um I can't let my self sense of self ex- you know, yes, depend on that. Even though sometimes I'm ostensibly writing about like really dumb stuff, like, I don't know, cupcakes or something. For example, I got assigned this story about candy. And I like candy, but I don't really like have any feelings about candy or anything to say about it. Because like there was not something coming from inside of me. Was that in the New York Times candy, the magazine candy edition? Yeah, there was a candy issue a couple right. of years ago. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so it was just like pulling teeth to write this thing. And it was so hard for me. And it was when I was able to finally understand after that was done. I was like, oh, I am a kind of person who needs to be very clear in my feelings before I can really write anything. And so if I don't have very strong feelings about something or if I don't care about something, I can't fake it. I can't do it. And this is how I felt even in making the show too. I was like, when this show comes out and my face is on it, if I'm saying something or doing something and I don't believe it, the only person who's going to pay the price is me. And so I'm happy with doing something that people won't like or is controversial if it is the thing I truly believe in my heart. Because then later I will genuinely be able to defend that and say why I did that. But if the only reason I did something is because someone else told me to do it, I can't do that. I'm not going to be able to defend that and I can't can't do that. So I feel that about the writing. I feel that about like all this stuff I have to put out. And I'm also fine apologizing. I know I'm not perfect. I make mistakes and I'm happy saying I'm sorry. But yeah, it's just an – it's an interesting thing. That leads in – Perfectly to my next question, which is to whom would you most like to apologize and why? Ooh, wow. So when I was a cook, I ran for five years this restaurant, Ecolo. And pretty much the whole time we were open, we were in financial peril. As we have all sort of learned now, the restaurant business is really tricky. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And even the most successful restaurants have very small margins. And so for a variety of reasons, it was just, it was, it was a really shaky time. 
I also was very young. I was 20, I think 24 to 29. Oh my gosh. And I was like a young brown woman in charge of a lot of people, many of whom were older than me or male. And cooks, you know, and I think this is true in a lot of industries, but cooks are like promoted because they're good cooks. And then you get promoted and then suddenly you're in charge of other people. But you weren't ever taught to manage or given the tools to manage. So I have a really bad temper and I was really mean to a lot of people. I was really mean. And I was mean because they weren't listening to me because they weren't doing it my way. I had a bigger picture of like the finances of our restaurant and I was just trying to keep everyone safe and employed. (laughs) And I also didn't have the tools within me to be a good boss to people, you know, and people didn't like me. And I, I... I mean, I also think probably with time I've exaggerated how bad it was, but I did not behave in ways that I'm proud of. And I mean, I mean, I never cursed at anyone. I never threw anything at anyone. I was mostly just passive aggressive, <laughs> but that's not a fun thing to come to work to. Well, and also that it sits with you, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and now that's like over 10 years ago and I still, I have a lot of regret of for that. So when I have sort of run into people who I worked with in that era, I have like gone out of my way to apologize to them. And there are some people who I know I'll never see again. And I would really like to apologize to them. Samin, I think that's really beautiful that you have the ability to look back on that. You know, a lot of people don't have that ability to reflect. I had for a while, I, I was making a list of people and professions I should never date. <laughs> Not that I, I just mean you have to know, like, I'm engaged. Like, I went on a couple dates in college, but I've never really dated. So this list is is nonsensical and whatever. Anyway, number one is magicians. Number two is musicians, unless they're <laughs> classical. Number three is professional athletes. And number four are, is chefs. Oh, good, good. <laughs> Those all seem like hotheads. I think chefs always surprises people who aren't in the restaurant industry because because I think that there's a romanticism, you know, they can cook for you late at night. But but I my my rationale, not knowing any chefs, was just that there's a cultivation of a hot temper in a crowded kitchen that might be seen as valued, perceived a, as strength. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly toxic. So modern kitchen culture descends from military culture. Like, that's why, like, there's a chef who's in charge and everybody listens to that. I mean, there's even a lot of terminology in French kitchens that is the sim- same as military terminology. And we even call like being in a kitchen where you're constantly like getting, I don't know, in the weeds and like one million tickets. You're like, oh, I worked in the trenches with somebody. But <laughs> it, it's one thing when it works out there. It's another thing like when it's your job that you're being paid for. And there is this incredible sense of camaraderie in professional kitchens that's really hard to find outside of them. And people are bound together, you know, for a very long time. And I mean, I'm still really good friends with a lot of the cooks that I've been through really traumatic experiences with. But is that what makes a truly good cook? I don't know. You know, I don't think so. I don't think that that's what's required. But who? where is that oppression coming from? It's coming from the people who are profiting. You know, it's capitalism at work. And so I think it's pretty flawed. And what I feel so unbelievably lucky about is that I have worked almost exclusively, I mean, apart from Chris's kitchen, in female-run kitchens. And not to say that females, as I just said, cannot be also aggressive and mean in their own ways. But for example, at Chez Panisse, it's a taken truth that there will be no yelling, throwing, or, you know, any sort of like terrifying behavior. That's not how things are done there. And so it's just not tolerated. And so it has a different, completely different ethic. And 
the kitchen I worked in in Italy was very similar. That I think shows that you can be a quote unquote good cook and not participate in that. But that's not the dominant culture. I mean, also, you know, I, I have really sort of complicated feelings about Anthony Bourdain. I think in a lot of ways he was an incredible person and brought a lot of cultural understanding to people. But also, you know, Kitchen Confidential really sort of glorified the machismo of kitchen culture and created an entire generation of cooks who wanted to be like that and be like him. And he, toward the end of his life, he, he was really apologetic. And he said, I didn't realize, you know, what I did by valorizing that. And I, I'm, I have a lot of regret about that. So I, it's a complicated thing. I have to. I'll have to think about that. I I think that's fascinating, though. I have always been like, oh, I could write a PhD about like quote unquote masculine cooking versus quote unquote feminine cooking, and like, it's not a gender thing necessarily, but there are just completely different styles. And again, not to say one's necessarily healthier, because there's a lot of passive aggression in places where there is not like full out aggression, <laughs> and that I think is the sim like those are symptoms of everyone being under such financial duress. It's just complicated. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. Our director on Mom, he used to direct Two and a Half Men. And for the first few mm. seasons, he would always say, God, it's so different here because we were a cast of all women. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I would constantly say, why, though? Why? Why? Like, tell tell me what. And he would always – he would. it was so frustrating. He would shake his head and be like, no, it's just different. It's just different. And it was very frustrating to me because I wanted to know specifically how this female cast is different. Like, mm -hmm. were we kinder? Did we have a better work ethic? What, what, what was it? <laughs> or were we cattier? I, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I want. I want details, dude. <laughs> My sweet Jamie Widows. Hi, Jamie. I don't know if you're listening. You probably wouldn't. But this next season, please tell me why we are different from men. Okay. So if you could, if Samin, if you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would it be? Ooh, probably Mexico City. I love Mexico City. I think it's so beautiful. I feel like I could live there for 10 years and not even get to see everything I would like to see. I could eat all the tacos I wanted. <laughs> and I would like to experience being in a place that's predominantly not white, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like right now, I walk out on the street and I look different than most other people. And that's what it's been pretty much my whole life. I experienced it a little bit in Italy because like there's a kind of a Mediterranean look to me. So like Italians wouldn't necessarily know, you know, where I was from. But I think it would be really wonderful to live somewhere where I walk outside and I blend in. 
Samin, you, you've mentioned this a couple of times in our conversation, and I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but is that sort of how you feel? Oh, that's like the MO of my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that is the driving force of almost everything I do is the fact I have felt like I don't belong my whole life. And it's not a great feeling. And I've always been trying to figure out how to work my way in. It's part of why I am like extremely skilled at making people feel comfortable because if I can make you feel comfortable, then maybe like you feel like I fit in with you. Right. I'm a chameleon or like it's also I've realized as an adult that that's also often called code switching. Like I kind of can fit in in any group. And that definitely goes back to being like a brown kid in a white world in Southern California for sure with a name that nobody could pronounce and food that smelled and looked different than everyone else's food and just like cultural traditions and all that kind of stuff. I was always so different and trying so hard to fit in and not knowing where, even when I went back to Iran at age 14. And um, that was actually really jarring because in my mind, I'd told myself this story that I must fit in in Iran because I don't fit in here. And then when I went to Iran, I didn't fit in there either. And so I think the idea of how do I create work that's incredibly welcoming to all, that doesn't make anyone feel excluded, that is absolutely what I'm trying to do. And I know that it's not possible. Of course, there's always a line of somebody that feels like something I make is not accessible to them or they don't like it. And But that's absolutely like the place that I, I start from. I like how you've turned it into something positive. Have you ever found a place that does feel more like home? I mean, I definitely feel that in Italy and I also feel that in Mexico. And I think a big part of it is those are both like hot blooded (laughs) (laughs) cultures, you know, that love food. And I think that those are things that feel very similar to my upbringing. Yeah. And like a lot of passion, (laughs) just like there's a way that Iranians and Italians and Mexicans prioritize family and food and feelings and sort of like emoting that feels very familiar. There's just also like there's this way when I get off the plane in Italy and like the smell of Uh diesel on the tarmac feels very much like the same way you feel when you get off the plane in Iran. Feels very much like the same way when you get off the plane in Mexico. There's kind of just a sameness and you know obviously they're like incredibly different things about all these cultures but there's also just a warmth, and um, it, that part feels really familiar. Yeah. Uh, last year, Michael, my partner, and I, we drove from Paris to the south of France, and then we we crossed into Italy in the winter. And just simply crossing the border into Italy, I felt like a little blanket around my heart. Mm. I don't know. that I, I, I love Italy. I love the lifestyle there. Okay, so what has been the most stressful experience of your life? Wow. Okay, okay. This wasn't just like one experience exactly. It was sort of a period where it it felt like everything was going wrong. And so this was after I left restaurants and I, I no longer had a steady income. And I wanted to take that opportunity to really write. And so I had some savings and I, I kind of committed to myself that I was going to like live as inexpensively as possible off of these savings and then write three days a week and then work the other days in, in like catering environments to make money and sort of pay my rent and stuff and my, my health insurance and all that kind of stuff. And um, a lot of stuff went wrong. And I was 
I mean, now looking back, I have probably been depressed, clinically depressed, maybe my whole life, certainly since I was like a late teenager. But I, at the time, was not really diagnosed and definitely not on medicine. So I had this like kind of like anxiety and depression that just was the undercurrent of my whole life. And I had financial stress. I was trying to start an entirely new career in something I was not very good at. Or just like not skilled at yet, you know? Yeah. And I remember like I I did so many different things, but like I did a yogajournal.com blog for $25 a post. Like there was just a lot of like doing anything that anybody would give me. And I was riding my bike home with my computer in my bag and I got doored on my bike. Like the, you know, I was riding in the bike lane and a car opened their door and smashed into me. And so, and earlier, like a couple months earlier, I didn't know it at the time, but I had torn like my meniscus and my knee. So I had one knee that I was limping from because it had torn meniscus. And then the other side of my body that had like all these bruises and hematomas. from, And then my computer laptop got like messed Uh. up. My bike got messed up. It was just like everything. It just felt like the world was, you know, all coming together to just. To take you down. And it didn't feel like I had anywhere to turn to. Or anyone and like and later I found out that I needed to have this knee surgery that was ten thousand dollars. Like just so much difficulty in so many different ways. And the fact that it was all coded in depression was really, 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 really terrible. And so I, I don't know that it was a kind of stress that you like are relieved from. It was just this kind of pressure that went on for a long time. Yeah. Samin, are you the are you the kind of person that do you have a, sort of a handful of really close friends as opposed to like a, maybe a massive social circle? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I also have like an incredible capacity for like relationship with people, but I do have sort of my like people who are you know close, like about family for me. They're they're the sort of their family for me. And those are the people that I rely on. But I also maybe because of my upbringing and my socialization, like I don't love asking people for stuff. That's really, really hard for me. Incredibly hard. So how do you like living in Oakland? I love it here. I love it here. I I was getting probably about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, I was really reaching what I thought was the end of my rope with the Bay Area. It's changed so much since I moved here in 97. And, you know, the tech world has transformed the economy here and the culture here. And so many people who I love are either hanging on by a thread or have been forced to leave just because of how expensive it's become to live here. And it very much sometimes feels like the culture here doesn't value the things that we make (laughs) and that the people here don't value the things that we value. And that's a really hard thing. To feel. Will you elaborate on that, Samin? Sure. I mean, there has just been an incredible influx of wealth here over the last 15 years. And there is a way where the Bay Area and San Francisco have always been sort of a home to cultural misfits (laughs) and great makers of culture. And the way that things have gentrified and become so expensive here has really sort of squeezed those people to the margins, not to mention like all sorts of people of color and people who bring so much different sort of diversity and and character to what can often be a very like monotone cultural, uh, like dominant culture of whiteness and, and 
sort of tech focus. And it, as a cook, it's been really weird, like super, super weird. We went from, you know, not really being valued or paid fairly in restaurants to like all of a sudden every tech person had their own personal chef, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> and so I don't know. It's just been a really weird time and journey to be a human in the Bay Area and to witness this thing that's taken over all of human culture from up close. So, and I, I don't come from much money. My parents don't have like a lot of money to give me. So it's like, I very much have felt on my own, you know, since I left for college and I have not chosen incredibly lucrative career paths. And it really wasn't until the show came out and, and my book sold really well, even before the show came out. But after the show came out, we sold so many books that all of a sudden it seemed like maybe one day I would be able to buy a house. And like all I've ever wanted is to feel grounded somewhere and to feel like I have a place to grow a garden and that's mine and that I can like really, which is maybe has, you know, there's things to say about that, like how traditional or whatever that kind of idea is about your own life. But I've just wanted a place to feel at home. And the fact that then I was able to do that and now I live in this like magical house with these magical neighbors has been an incredible salve. And because I feel safe and like financially secure here, I think I have been able to loosen up a little bit. And I also think that this time, coronavirus time, demonstrating the fragility of this economy will probably like change a lot of things about um, about the Bay Area too. So we'll see. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay. What haven't you taken the time to learn about? <sighs> Interesting. This is complicated because it's more than just time, but my family history. Yeah. That's a great. It's like also very emotionally like, you know, laden. Right. Is there anything specifically that you want to know? Just like people's stories of like Mm -hmm. what they went through in our family. There's and I think in our culture and maybe in a lot of immigrant cultures where there, there was trauma suffered. There's a lot of secrecy and shame and people don't want to talk about what happened. So there's just a lot I don't know, you know, there's a lot I don't know. And there is, as as an incredibly curious person, I feel very embarrassed and ashamed that I've not taken the time to like sit down and ask my parents or my family certain questions. But I also know anytime I have asked questions, like... I've not really gotten any answers. So it it's it, it it's like a seems like a very a large emotional lift in addition to a large time commitment to get some answers. You know, it's I it's like I would have to treat it like a journalism project. Right. Are you close with both of your folks? To- um I'm not really I'm I'm not really so close to my dad and and but I am fairly close to my mom and then I'm very close with my brothers, which is really helpful. I like the idea of you approaching it as a journalist. Maybe that would make your mom perhaps more open to sharing some of her stories. Yeah, I also think if I just paid somebody else to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. <laughs> Last year I did this project. It, it was a cooking project specifically where I did the ten, like my 10 essential Persian recipes for the New York Times. And I felt very uncomfortable sort of speaking for an entire country and culture and cuisine. So I really made it about my mom and my mom's cooking and my childhood. And I was super busy and traveling a ton and I didn't have the time. So I hired somebody, my friend, who is a pretty great cook and is Persian and speaks English. I hired her to take an oral history of my mom. And so she interviewed my mom about the like her relationship to these 10 recipes 
and like got the recipes out of her and we then like tested them and made a thing. And I was really impressed because the way that she was able to translate the recipes really tasted exactly like my mom's cooking, which was awesome. And that for the first time I felt like, oh, okay, like I got something out of her. But it was about food and not like the heavy stuff. So right. <laughs> yeah, it was baby steps. So Samin, you know, my mom introduced me to you. She sent me your cookbook that she loved. Oh. Samin, your cookbook is the first cookbook I've used where I have not fucked up a recipe. You you must have tested this shit out of these recipes. Oh, that is so awesome. But it's so true. Everything is so well done and explained in an interesting and humorous way. And I love your personal stories. Everything that went wrong. <laughs> like nothing's foolproof. You'll probably hit something that doesn't work for you. I think one part of it is I tried to write stuff pretty loosely to give you, to empower you, to use your own judgment. So that's part of it. But we did. I did also test it a lot. I tested everything multiple times myself. And then... Because it took me so many years to write the book, so many years, and along the way people had offered to test recipes when I got to that point, I put up a form on my website and I said, if you want to test recipes, just fill out this form and I'll get in touch when it's time. And so because it took so long, over a thousand people signed up. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. And so, yeah, it was amazing. And they were all over the world. And so by the time it was time... I had this massive sort of base of people who could help and who did help. And so we sent out every recipe to multiple people and had them test it and give feedback of like what worked, what didn't work, did everything make sense. And that was really helpful because then we were able to incorporate that feedback into the into the thing. Because there's one version where like, you know, I am aware that I'm a Northern California snob and that I live in a bubble but at least I'm aware of it. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, and so I understand as somebody who's trying to speak to an audience way beyond here that I have to, I have to allow for a lot of different versions of reality. And that means like, you know, maybe you can't find fresh spinach, so you use frozen. Maybe you can't make your own pasta, so you use a box of pasta. Maybe you can't, I don't know, find artichokes, so you use some other vegetable and that's really important to me because my my like dream is not that you make my recipe as I wrote it and that it looks exactly like my thing. That's why we didn't put photos in the book. I want it to work for you in your circumstance. And that is going to be different for everybody. I love your book so much. You've really condensed your recipes to mastering some basic things. You know what recipe I really love to, or oh, I don't know how to pronounce, sorry, I'm flipping through the book right now. Oh, the, ka- how do you pronounce it? The kaf- Kafka's? Oh, the kufte kebabs? Yes. Ah, oh. oh, those are so good. Oh, so basically you're just like making all the Iranian stuff at home. Yeah, I love it. You're just like an Iranian lady. <laughs> awesome. Um, okay, so who would you invite to your dream dinner party? This is an interesting question for you, I think specifically. Yeah. Okay, I definitely would invite Mrs. Obama. I would invite, why choose? Beyonce and Solange. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe they wouldn't come, but who knows? Of course they're coming. Um, Oh, I would invite for sure my friend Greta, who is just like the best dinner party maker ever. Why? What makes Greta? She is a good cook. You know, she's not like a professional cook, but she's a good cook. 
She doesn't take anything too seriously. She has incredible taste. And so like she knows how to set a table really beautifully, but not in a fancy way, just in a nice like welcoming way. She knows how to set the tone in a room and like get the candles and like, you know, make sure there's like a bowl of olives for everyone and put the music on. And she's just a really good host. So I would ask her to like do it with me, you know. What authors? Oh, I would ask for sure Chimamanda <laughs> to come over <laughs> and maybe also Jhumpa Lahiri. Why not? Wow, this is a lot of good ladies. Um, Who else? I love George Saunders. I would invite him. I'm trying to imagine George Saunders and Mrs. Obama and Beyonce at the same table, but that's cool. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Greta, Gretel, Greta's got it down. Oh, Greta's like the ultimate bridger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, oh God, who else should come? Who else should come? I think also I, in order to make it like a little bit balanced, I would have to have like, you know, more of my actual friends Yeah. over. So yeah, just the people I spend my, you know, my days with. Yeah. Samin, so. in, in one word, how would you like to be remembered? Curious. Oh. No, generous. I don't know, both. You can have both. <laughs> So you just launched a podcast, Home Cooking? Yeah. My friend Rishi Kesh Hirway, who produces a bunch of podcasts I love, we have been talking about doing one for a long time. So when the stay-at-home orders happened, he said, now's the time. Let's just do one about cooking. So we, we just started taking questions from people and answering their cooking questions. And, you know, food is always also about so much more than just what you're eating. It's emotional, it's financial, it's all sorts of things. And so there's opportunity for us to talk about a lot of stuff, but mostly it's just us. It's me being mean to him and him making really bad puns. (laughs) And and we laugh a lot. We make a lot of jokes. Yeah. And I just, we wanted to put something out to comfort people, to help give them some tools to figure out how to use what they've got on hand in the kitchen. And um, it's just a four-part little series. And actually, our last episode just came out. So we're done for now. But I have enjoyed doing it so much that we may go back and do do more. But it's, it's yeah, it's, 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 a, it's been a fun, fun journey to just do something. You know, we're not super prepared. It's not super curated. It's just us being silly. And I think this time really sort of needs that from, from more people. Samin, when you're cooking in the kitchen with with somebody else, what makes you crazy? Well, <laughs> what doesn't make me right, crazy? Right. <laughs> the main thing that makes me crazy is inefficiency. Because that's like the main thing that's taught to you as a cook is how to move efficiently, not only for time, but also like so you're not wasting a ton of your own energy. There's a thing... <laughs> This is so little and so stupid, (laughs) but it really makes me nuts. And every time I have to stop and I've learned because, as I said earlier, like I can be a little bit of an ogre in the kitchen. (laughs) I I, um, have learned how to sort of speak more nicely to friends. Uh huh. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> who I don't want to alienate. And I'm always like, can I show you a better right, right. way to do that? <laughs> and so one thing that I always am like, can I show you a better way to do that is if people are peeling carrots or cucumbers and they're like holding the carrot in one hand and hold the peeler in the other hand and just sort of are doing it over the trash can or over the sink that is really slow and it's also like not easy on your body 
But if you rest the carrot down on the cutting board or the counter or the cucumber and just use your hand to rotate it, it's a million times faster and there's way less energy involved. Oh, that's so good to know. It's the same thing as like grating a piece of cheese. If you grate your piece of cheese holding it up in the air, it just takes a lot more muscle power. But if you put your grater down on the counter, right? Right. And the cheese, you you can push your body weight against the grater, against the counter, and you're not like using all your muscles to hold both the cheese and the grater up. Yeah. Okay. What are like two or three things, kitchen items that we need that might seem obscure? Okay. The one I always tell people yeah. that is seems really silly but is so helpful is a metal scrubby. So it's it's like a stainless steel scrubbies. You can buy them. I've seen them at Target, but they're also in like hardware stores. It is the thing that's going to scrape all of that crap off your pot or your oh. baking sheet. And it's just like, again, reduces the amount of work you have to do. And it makes cleaning up one million times easier. So metal scrubbies, number one. What's another thing that I like that maybe is a little bit extra? I mean, I will say I just referred to it. The microplane grater. Mm-hmm. Which is those like rasp graters. Those they're like maybe twelve bucks, which is kind of expensive for a grater, but you can do so many things with it. I mean, you can grate cheese finely, you can use it to zest citrus, you can use it to grate nutmeg, which is like way better freshly grated than like pre-ground. And when you're when you're feeling lazy like I often am, <laughs> you can grate garlic cloves or ginger rather than like chopping oh, it finely. Wow. You know, and it's a way to make it. I never thought yeah. about using that for garlic. That's awesome. Yeah. So I love a microplane grater. And then probably my third thing I would say, this is not expensive. I have like a bunch of them that I just give away, is there's these little Swiss peelers, this brand called Xylis, Z-Y-L-I-S-S. And the peelers probably cost like two fifty. <laughs> They're like these little plastic peelers shaped like a Y. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. They're just way more ergonomic to hold and to use to grate stuff that, or to peel things than the classic peeler that most people grow up with. And you can, again, go way faster. You can go way faster when you're doing your carrots and cucumbers. You can go way faster when you're doing your potatoes. And I feel like really depressed if I'm in a kitchen that does not have one of those. I found this beautiful asparagus the other day and I peeled like 40 of them. Do you have an opinion that about the fat or skinny asparagus? Oh, so, you know, you know, like asparagus are like trees. And so the fat ones are just older ones. Every year they get another ring, you know. Okay. I like fat ones because I think, I don't know, there's just more to bite into and you're less likely to overcook it. But I like them all. Yeah. Okay. But you got to get yourself a Y-peeler system. Yeah. And hold that all asparagus right. down I'm on doing the counter. It. Now you're going to be so fast. So, Samin, are you working on anything that excites you right now? Are you working on on another book? I'm still writing and I'll be writing for a while. So the book's still far away. So for now, I think the podcast is something I'm really excited to share with people. And then also I I took a break for about eight months from my column at the New York Times, but I'm going back to my column. So I'm pretty excited about that. It's been a big few years for me, a lot of emotional and energy output. There was so much travel last year. It was just a lot. And I, I kind of crashed and I just needed to be home and take care of myself and stop like putting stuff out in the world and figure out what I care about. But also I do feel, you know, because now I have a platform, I feel a responsibility to people and this does feel like a time when people really need the comfort of like somebody holding their hand in the kitchen and 
helping them figure out how to cook and what to cook and how food can bring us together. So I actually am like excited to have something to say that feels relevant and timely. I've liked all of the different interviews I've gotten to do while we've been at home. I've liked doing my podcast and now I'm really excited. Oh, I got to do this big lasagna project. I know. Times, which was really fun. That was great. Yeah. And um, yeah. And so now I'm excited to go back and do my column and, and write a book and figure out, you know, who I am in the world. Yeah. Will you come to Los Angeles? I would love to attempt to cook for you. Oh, yeah. Plus really? that. Oh, my God. There's also so many restaurants I love in L.A. that I can't wait to support and go to again. Okay. Well, you can do that on so. your day off. But first stop, you're okay, coming good. over here. <laughs> Got to come to your house. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I won't be able to impress you, but I would love to have – I would just love to sit down with you and welcome you oh, to – Oh, me too. It would be so fun. Home. And I can't thank you enough for doing this. And I think you have brought a lot of love and joy – to, to people. You bring Thank people you. a lot of happiness. And I, I know that that's probably an additional uh, weight on you, but... It's good, though. I feel pretty resourced right now, so I'm happy to do okay. it. You know, yeah. it's a nice it's a nice thing to have be your job. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you again for your time. Oh, this was so nice. I feel like we're friends now. Me too. Well, I embarrassingly, I sort of felt like that before selfishly. <laughs> But now we had the interaction, so I feel it too. I can't thank you enough. Oh, awesome. In Farsi, we say Nushajun. That's like our bon appetit. So Nushajun for your next taddy. Nushajun. <laughs> I love how much um, Persian food you're cooking. It's awesome. Oh, it's so fucking good. What should I make that uh, I haven't tackled yet? Um, have you made buttermilk chicken? No, not yet. The buttermilk roast chicken is like the, it's so good and it's so easy and it's so tasty. It's so good. All right. <laughs> That's probably the best thing in the whole book. Thank you again. <laughs> oh, thank you. I just, I love and adore you. Oh, you're the best. It was really so nice to chat with you. Thanks again, Samin. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>